So we're concluding our four-week series today called Living Under the Reign of a King. And today our task is to understand and make sense of and apply what is to me one of the most scandalizing stories in the entire Bible, the story of David and Bathsheba. We're going to be in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and then Psalm 51. Now even if you're not familiar with this particular story, you're absolutely familiar with this type of story. This is about a man who accepts a powerful, high-ranking political position. The public puts an immense amount of hope and trust into him. He experiences a major moral failure, calls a press conference, cries on television, apologizes to his family. We've seen this a dozen times over the last decade at the state and federal level. So this may be a modern epidemic, but it's actually an ancient problem. Now, 2 Samuel 11 is going to tell the story. I'm going to summarize the first part of it. It says that it's the time when kings go out to war. So David has sent his generals and forces out to the borders to face off against the assailing nations who are coming after him. But David decides to stay home. And so he's standing on the terrace of his palace. Uh, scholars think that Jerusalem in this, time, in this day would have been, had a small footprint, densely populated. So maybe only a dozen or two feet separating David from neighboring residences. And David, from the view on his balcony, he sees a woman named Bathsheba who's bathing. And he begins to burn for her in his heart. And he has a servant go and fetch her, brings her to the palace. He sleeps with her. He sends her back. He gets, in, gets her an Uber and sends her home. A few weeks later, Bathsheba sends word, David, I'm pregnant. Now this has gone from sort of an impromptu, uh, spur-of-the-moment kind of fling that David instigated to now what could become a public scandal. And so he devises a plan because Bathsheba was married to a man named Uriah. Uriah was a soldier in the Israeli army, so he's out on the front lines. David calls him home and says, Uriah, great job. Appreciate what you've done. Why don't you take a few days R&R, have something to eat, enjoy some drinks, spend some time with your wife. Thinking that Uriah will, will get together with Bathsheba, and then there will be a cover for this pregnancy. But Uriah is a nobleman, and he says, David, how can I go and cover myself in my wife's presence when my men are sleeping in the open air and dying on the front lines? I won't do it. And so he sleeps in front of his front door on the ground. David goes, man, I did not see it going that way. And so he tries again, says, Uriah, man, have some drinks, enjoy some time with your wife. Uriah says, I can't do it. So he sleeps again in front of his front door. So plan B, David sends Uriah back to the front and gives word to the commanders there. I want you to take Uriah out to the fiercest part of the battle and then immediately, all together, withdraw, leaving him exposed, which is what happens. So he's killed there. And then in 2 Samuel eleven twenty six, we read, When the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And so now... Bathsheba gets word that her husband is dead and she's in mourning. And verse 27 says, And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. And then what is maybe the largest understatement in all of written history, it says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now I don't know about you, but I would choose the word displeased for something like I go to a deli and order soup and it comes out cold. That's displeasing to me. This is a whole nother magnitude. And so given all that we know about this story and all that we're going to see in this passage, I have to think that the word choice here 
establishes the floor of God's feeling about this deal. And I said that this story scandalizes me perhaps more than any other in the entire Bible because it's a story about a king that God appointed. God chose David and appointed him. And the Bible says two different times that David is a man after God's own heart. But what we've seen here is this story is about a man who at the very least engages in an adulterous relationship. More likely, this is not consensual and he actually raped Bathsheba. There's no evidence in the text really to suggest that Bathsheba was complicit whatsoever. And, and even if she didn't say no, what is she going to do? There's a total power imbalance here. She's beckoned to the palace of the king. She, she's totally helpless in this situation. And so we see a morally corrupt man who then manipulates the woman's husband into believing that the pregnancy resulting from the likely assault was his child rather than the king's. And when that doesn't work, he sets out to murder that husband. And in doing all that, he brings the judgment of God upon his sin, which is going to result in the death of the baby that was conceived during the assault. And what probably was Bathsheba's sole comfort in a time as she's grieving the assault, grieving her husband's death, and I can just imagine her holding this child as the child's life expires and looking into its eyes and expecting to see or hoping and wanting to see the color of Uriah's eyes there. That's not the color she sees. And so there's just total devastation. And David is going to continue on for seven to nine months as though nothing has happened, as though everything is normal. He's just completely drunk on his own power in this situation. And I'm going to spoil the ending for you. The end of this story, David does not receive swift and certain justice. You know what he receives? Forgiveness. And that is deeply offensive. That is deeply offensive that that level of injustice could occur. And rather than him being held accountable by the letter of the law, he's extended forgiveness. But God does confront David so that in 2 Samuel 12, we see the prophet Nathan comes to David and says to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other was poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup. It would lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock and prepare it for the guest who had come to him. But instead he took the poor man's lamb and cooked it to prepare for the man who had come to visit. Verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the rich man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan takes a long pause and he looks David square in the eye and he says, David, you are the man. You are the rich man. And all of a sudden, the penny drops for David. He understands. His eyes are opened. And in verse 14, or sorry, in verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin, David, and you shall not die. Now this is significant because if you read the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, what you see clearly in Genesis 9, Exodus 21, Leviticus 20, is that the punishment prescribed for the offenses of David are death. 
the penalty for adultery is death. The penalty for rape is death. The penalty for murder is death. And so here David knows, because he knows the law. And so he understands that he's facing two, probably three, capital charges and he's guilty. He's been caught. He's been found out. And he knows that he has incurred God's judgment. And yet, and yet Nathan says to him, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, in verse 14, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And at this news, David is gut-punched and hopeless. He's in complete despair and brokenness. It says that he fasts and lies on the ground for seven days, pleading with God to spare the child. But a week later, the, the baby dies and David hits rock bottom. And it's from that place of despair that David penned Psalm 51. Now, given this story and all that David has done and how outrageous it is, how can the Bible say in two different places that David is a man after God's own heart? Certainly what David has done does not match our intuition or conception of what it's like to be after God's own heart. But as we read Psalm 51, we're going to see some elements of true repentance and we're going to gain an understanding of how it can still be. So turning to Psalm 51, first we're going to see that David relies solely on God's mercy. Look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, we don't have a lot of hyssop growing here, so you may not know what it looks like, but hyssop kind of looks like Texas sagebrush. It's kind of a branchy plant. Hyssop occurs seven times in the Bible, uh, five times in the Old Testament, twice in the New. And when David references hyssop, he's making a very clear allusion to what everyone in Israel would have understood at the Passover. So you recall that as Moses is leading the people of Israel... Out of slavery in Egypt, God sends a plague or a series of plagues against Pharaoh. And one of those plagues, God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send my spirit through the land. And as I do, I'm going to kill the firstborn son in every household. But for you, Israel, my chosen people, if you will take a hyssop branch and dip it in the innocent blood of a lamb and spread it over your doorpost, I will pass over you and spare your son. And I'll show you mercy rather than judgment. In Leviticus, we see that people in Israel who have skin disease are declared ceremonially unclean. And what they need to do to actually re-enter society is they have to take a hyssop branch and dip it in the innocent blood of a lamb and, and spread themselves with that blood and making themselves ceremonially clean again so they can come back to their community and family. So what David's saying here is, God, I am totally guilty. I am hopeless in the face of what I've done and my, my only hope in fact, is that you would just pass over me, that you would show me grace. He's saying, just like you did for, for Israel and Egypt, just taking the hyssop branch and just spreading innocent blood over my do doorpost and just pleading mercy. So we see that David relies solely on God's mercy, but also David confesses his sin. Look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Now recall, though, that between the occurrence of all these things and when Nathan comes to David, you've got a span of in the upwards of a year. And David's going along totally oblivious to what he's done. And yet now David is saying, 
God, you've confronted me and I see it. My sin is ever before me. We know from Romans 2 that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so David's presence in David's life is a kindness. David continues in the psalm, Against you, God, you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Saying, from the very beginning, I've been covered in sin. I am sinful through and through. Now what's interesting is that David, he's saying here, God, against you only have I sinned. And yet we see very clearly that David has sinned against Bathsheba. He's victimized her in a terrible way. He sinned against Uriah. His blood is on David's hands. He sinned against the baby who died as a result of this conduct. He sinned against the people of Israel who had entrusted him to lead the nation. But what David sees here is that ultimately the most serious aspect of his offense was against God's holiness. God's perfect righteousness, his complete purity, his total uprightness. Now in contrast to David, Saul, the king who preceded David, when he was confronted with his sin, he didn't rely on God's mercy. He didn't confess his sin. He did what you and I usually do. He got defensive and he started self-justifying and explaining why his sin was actually the reasonable thing to do and the right thing to do. My wife and I are celebrating 12 years of marriage next month. But it didn't take me 12 years to learn something in marriage. It took me about 15 minutes to learn how much of a sorry sucker I really was. How selfish I really am. And it's not until marriage where you get this mirror held up in front of you. Where you see exactly what's in your heart. You had a false picture of yourself until the mirror of marriage is held up before you. And then you see clearly. And so I started picking up on things that maybe I didn't understand at first. And then, you know, but you you go through the motions as a husband. You learn some things. And so you start picking up on the subtle things. So there may be times, very occasionally, where I speak an insensitive word or I don't listen. I'm impatient. And my wife will very gently and graciously bring to my attention my sin. And usually my response, like Saul, is to, to explain how rational and reasonable I've been. And how can you not see that what I've done here was the right thing? And you're not seeing it clearly. And I can tell you that doesn't work in marriage. It, it doesn't go well. And, but I start picking up on just the subtleties, right? Just the little things that only a husband could pick up on when I can tell that I've done something. Like my wife will, you know, like if she like bursts into tears and runs out of the room, then I can, I, I'm like, oh, I think I might have done something there. You know, or when, or when if she like gives me the, bat, the mad dog stare and goes like the finger across the throat, then I, I'm like, maybe something. I'm just kidding. My wife is the sweetest woman in the world. She would never do the throat slash in front of other people. I'm, I might pay for that later. That was, that was, not, that was not fair. Uh, okay, so David recognizes God's holiness and his complete depravity. And for us to engage in this kind of confession of sin, it requires the perspective that David had. Once we become aware of God's holiness, we come, we come to an immediate and imminent understanding of our own sinfulness, of our own depravity, of its depth and its breadth. I grew up in... in Tulsa as a little kid and I remember going downtown where my dad worked he worked in the tallest building in downtown Tulsa and it was like 50 stories high and I thought this thing stretches to the heavens this thing continues infinitely into the sky and downtown Tulsa seemed huge to me and then a couple years later I moved to Dallas and I remember the first time I drove into Dallas and saw the skyline I thought 
oh my goodness, Dallas is huge. Dallas is 10 times the size of Tulsa and its skyline. I thought Tulsa was big, but now I see that actually Dallas is big. And then 10 years later, I moved to New York City. And I remember the first time driving into Manhattan. I'd never been there before. I was driving a U-Haul into Manhattan. And I remember thinking, this skyline is 100 times the size of Dallas. I thought Dallas was big. Actually, New York is big. And Tulsa, which I used to think was big, is quaint. It's just a quaint little Midwestern town. And it's just the same way when, when we don't see God's holiness and the, the, the immensity of God and his righteousness, then it's easy for us to minimize the scale of our own sin. There's a Puritan prayer that's beautiful in the way it, it prays. It reads, I need to repent of my repentance. Even my tears need to be washed. In other words, even in my cleanest moment, even in my clearest moment of self-awareness before God of my sin, even then I am tinged with sin. Even my tears need to be washed. We're not as sinful as we could be, but we are sinful through and through. This is what theologians call total depravity. All of us, 100% of us, completely sinful and separated from God. So to encounter this level of confession, we have to have perspective of God's holiness. And there's two kinds of people that really struggle with this. The first kind are irreligious people. People who have not yet been convinced of God's holiness or even his existence. They don't think that there's an objective moral standard in the world by which to compare themselves or by which they will ultimately be judged. And because that's not their perspective, their world is one-dimensional and only the material exists and matters and they're never going to be that bad relative to everything that they see. If we're only comparing ourselves to those of us sitting around us, we're not that bad. And besides, there's always Hitler, right? We're never going to be the worst because Hitler. <laughs> and so irreligious people tend to struggle with understanding their sin in light of God's holiness. The other kind of person who struggles are religious people. Those of us who have known God's holiness for years, we've become so familiar with church and Bible reading and worship and all these things that go along with trying to follow Jesus that we've lost our sense of perspective. After I lived in Manhattan for five years, New York didn't seem big to me anymore. It just became familiar until I flew away from New York back to Tulsa to visit family and realized how small Tulsa was and how big New York was. And we have to be reminded of true perspective so that we can understand God's holiness and be reminded of our sin, the seriousness and the scope. So David relies on God's mercy, he confesses his sin, and then he abandons any attempt at earning forgiveness. Look at verse 16, Psalm 51. David says, For you, God, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Now this is a strange thing for, for David to write, because David knows the law. In Leviticus 16, it's very clearly outlined that once a year, the nation of Israel is going to gather together and all of the sin that they've committed in that year is going to be dealt with in a ceremony of atonement whereby the priest takes a bull, slaughters it, takes the blood and sprinkles it on the altar. And then they take a goat and they slaughter it and they sprinkle the blood on the altar. And this ritual is designed to deal with the sin of, of Israel, to atone for their sin. And so for David to say, God... I would give a sacrifice, but I know that that's not what you want. How can he say that when this is what God has instituted very clearly? David understands the seriousness of his sin. He understands that even his best deeds, even his most religious, righteous acts would not be enough to make up for the sin that he's committed. 
This is what Isaiah says in chapter 64. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That Hebrew word literally is like a minstrel cloth. Our best moments, our most righteous deeds, our best efforts, our most religious day, that one year that we didn't miss a Sunday at church, all of that is filthiness compared to God's holiness. We are sinful through and through. Not as sinful as we could be, but sinful through and through. Now this story isn't here so that we can learn to avoid David's sin. We're already guilty of David's sin. But rather this story exists to show us that we can share in David's forgiveness. This story is usually taught with two applications. Men, David was lingering on the balcony when he should have been at work. And he was dwelling with lustful thoughts and gazes. Don't do that. And women, don't be immodest like Bathsheba. Because you don't want to cause men to stumble. Now I've got to be honest with you. I don't exactly know why this Bathsheba um, application is taught. It might have been the case. But I don't see anything in the text to suggest that Bathsheba was a fault here. Or that she had done anything wrong. The Bible does teach modesty in another place. So okay, that's fine. But that's, I don't think that's and a really a pertinent lesson here and I don't think it's what the text teaches yes this thing about David is true men go to work don't be lazy and just hang around and and yes be disciplined with your eyes and don't don't allow yourself to to linger with lustful thoughts but that's not what this is about we're already guilty of David's sin this shows us that we can share in David's forgiveness so what forgiveness do you need to share in today is there anything that you're harboring in your heart anything that's in the secret places of your mind, in the dark places of your life when no one's looking, that you're tempted to minimize that sin and say, it's not hurting anyone. It's not like I'm really acting on it. It's no big deal. Or maybe your sin is very public and it's absolutely hurting people. And you know that it's outside the bounds of what God has intended and instructed for you. What forgiveness do you need to partake in today? Now I say that we're guilty of David's sin and I suspect that some of you are going, wait a minute, I might be sinful, but I'm not guilty of David's sin. I've been faithful in my marriage. I've certainly never engaged in a forceful sexual encounter with anyone. I've not murdered anybody. So how am I guilty of David's sin? Matthew 5, Jesus preaches a really interesting sermon where he gathers with people like us who have that same instinct and go, well, we're not as bad as David. And he starts to raise some questions like, hey, uh, you might not have committed murder, but let me ask you this. Have you ever been angry at your brother in your heart? Have you ever hated and despised your brother in your heart? Well, if you have, then you're guilty just as though you murdered him. And you might not have acted in infidelity outside of your marriage, but have you ever entertained a lustful thought? Have you ever entertained a fantasy of someone who's not your spouse? If so, you're guilty as though you're an adulterer. And so Jesus takes the place of Nathan and he steps into his shoes and he gazes into our eyes and he faces down that kind of self-delusional reductionism that we engage in and says, no, if it's in your mind, it's in your heart. And if it's in your heart, then you're as guilty as though you've acted. And so repent. Both of the sin itself and the self-righteousness that made you think that you were better than the person who actually succumbed to it. We sit next to someone who's actually acted on these things and we feel superior to them because we've only thought about it. You know what the difference between me and David is and you and David is? He had servants that could go fetch Bathsheba. He had total power. Most of us don't have total power. 
It's not by our righteousness that we're restrained from acting out in sin. It's by God's grace. It's by the circumstance of our life. We are just as guilty as David. And so if we read this story as something set a thousand years before Jesus, as though it's frozen in time and only exists for us to glean moral lessons about how to be pure with our eyes and how to be modest in our dress, we've missed the point of this thing. And just like David couldn't write Psalm 51 until he recognized that he was the man, we can't read Psalm 51 until we realize that we are the man. We have to enter into this psalm and make it our own confession. I said this story is unbearable. It is unbearable to me to watch David do all that he did and then get extended forgiveness by God. That is unbearable to me because I think I'm better than David. But once I realize that I am the man, that's no longer unbearable. It's now fresh water in the desert. Until I realize, like David before Nathan, that I am the man, and in God's sovereign kindness, he forgives me. And in God's sovereign kindness, this entire tragic episode points the rest of humanity throughout the rest of history to Jesus. And without Jesus, we would be subject to the punishment that David deserved. I even think about the injustice of this child dying as a result of David's sin. That's totally unjust. I think about the suffering of Bathsheba and the the death of Uriah. And all of this could have just been a moral lesson. But God, in his redemption, uses all of this to point us to our guilt and to point us to the forgiveness available in Jesus. In this account, I see the grotesque nature of my sin, and I'm able to be disgusted by my own sin, and I'm able to see the immeasurable cost of my salvation. But there's a rub here. How do we deal with the reality that David was not punished according to the law? How do we deal with the fact that David did all this horrible stuff, and God says, but I'm not going to punish you. I'm not going to put you to death. Instead, I'm just going to kill the baby. I mean, that's totally unjust. I mean, are we really to believe that God was furious with David until David wrote the poem? God was like, man, David, I was super upset with what you did. But then, man, you wrote this beautiful poem. So we're all square. I mean, that makes no sense. So God shows mercy to David, which when we see that we are the man, we are David, we say thank God for that. But yet we know that God is just. And so how do we reconcile these things? When my wife was a sophomore in college, one of her best friends was at Old Miss. She was coming home from a Bible study late one night, driving northbound on a two-lane highway in a sedan. Coming southbound on that same highway was a Tahoe filled with five freshman fraternity pledge brothers who had been out at the bar. The driver, who was intoxicated, swerves across the yellow line, hits her head on, and she's killed instantly. Months later, at the driver's sentencing hearing, that girl's parents stand in the court before the judge, and they explain that they are Christians, and that the God that they have come to know and worship has shown them extreme mercy in the person of Jesus. And they want to demonstrate the loving kindness of God, the hesed of God we talked about last week. We want to demonstrate the loving kindness of God to this boy. And so, judge, would you give him mercy rather than justice? But in that courtroom, you could not have mercy and justice. You had to choose. And you could have a trade-off, maybe half justice, half mercy, but you could not have total mercy and total justice. So how do we understand this story Is God giving up a unit of justice, a measure of justice for the sake of mercy? Well, that's that's imperfect. That's a compromise. Is that the God that we worship? I go back to to where Nathan tells David, 
David, you've scorned the Lord, and so the child who is born to you shall die. That is barbaric. What kind of solution is that? That's beyond unfair. It seems totally unjust, and yet that scenario was not a foreign scenario to the father. That's not the first time that God had thought about an innocent child dying in the place of a sinful man. In fact, it was excruciatingly familiar. I said hyssop occurs two times in the New Testament. One of those is in John 19. The scene is Jesus on the cross. And in verse 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Do you see what's happening here? In the same way, at the Passover, God says to Israel, take a hyssop branch and dip it in innocent blood and raise it over your head so that I may pass over you and show you mercy instead of judgment. And David's saying, God, my only hope is that you would wash me with hyssop and you would pass over my sin. And now Jesus on the cross, taking the place of the innocent lamb, hyssop raised high, innocent blood at the end of it, so that God would pass over the sins of the people and show them mercy instead of justice. And so God shows justice on the cross and mercy to David. Yet how do these coexist? Romans 3, the Apostle Paul fills in the blanks for us. Look at verse 21. But now now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What does that mean? The law and the prophets, everything that we're reading in the Old Testament, bear witness to the fact of God's righteousness and his mercy Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. How do you access the righteousness of God? Through faith in Jesus. In verse 23, look at what he says here. This is the same thing that David says in Psalm 51. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, 100%. Not as sinful as we could be, but sinful through and through. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. David said that sacrificing a bull or sacrificing a goat would be insufficient to deal with the gravity of his sin. So why then did God institute a rhythm, the Jewish holiday we call Yom Kippur? Why would God want his people every year doing something that's insufficient to deal with the sin? Because it was pointing us to the truer and better sacrifice. Ultimately, to the blood of a truly innocent lamb that would be sufficient to take care of the sin of people. This was to show God's righteousness, Paul continues, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In other words, how does God allow David to go unpunished? Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. And it was to show, verse 26, his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier. How is God perfectly just and perfectly merciful? Because God exists outside of time. And so he, in his divine forbearance, passes over and forgives David's sin, pours that sin on Jesus at the cross to show his justice and righteousness. And on that cross, along with David's sin, was my sin and yours. And so God shows himself perfectly just and perfectly merciful. Psalm 51 was not just a personal prayer. It was a song of corporate worship. It starts with the instruction to the choir master. Israel entered into and shared in this song as their own confession. 
How do you need to internalize Psalm 51 today? In what ways do you need to make Psalm 51 your song? In this account, do you see the gravity of your sin and the gloriousness of God's grace? Or do you only see the account of a man who falls morally in a way that you don't think you have and you don't think you will? Or maybe you have in part, but not in whole. In conclusion, this points us to the same thing that the last three passages for the last three weeks have. David took for himself what was not his at great cost to others. Jesus gave to others what was not theirs at great cost to himself. David was a sinful and selfish king. Jesus was a sinless and sacrificing king. David forced his sin on the world around him. Jesus absorbed the sin of the world around him. David's choices brought death to those around him. Jesus' choices brought life to all those who would bow down before him. Jesus is the truer and better David. Jesus is the truer and better sacrifice. He's the one who took the sin of the world upon himself so that the righteousness of God could be placed upon the world. So back to our original question, how do we live under the reign of a king? How do we live as followers of Jesus in a divided and divisive culture? We do so by allowing the little K king under whom we serve, political, corporate, neighborhood, whatever it is, whether by their utter corruption, David and Bathsheba, or upright character, David and Mephibosheth, whatever the case, that our hearts would be pointed to King Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father and who will ultimately govern all of his creation with perfect righteousness. We live under the reign of a king by remembering that a better king is coming. That's our hope. Let me pray for us as we close. God, thank you for the story of David and Bathsheba. This is a horrific account of abuse of power and sin and corruption. And God, save us from the temptation to see this as a story of someone else's failure. And God, help us to see our own sin in it, to understand that like David, we are the man that we share in David's guilt. And yet because of your great love for us and because all that Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection, that we can also share in David's forgiveness. God, help us to embrace that today as the truest thing in our life. Spirit, would you empower us to live as people who have been set free, to live as people who have been passed over, who have escaped your judgment and been granted an inheritance in your kingdom. Would you make us people who are full of joy and hope and truth and promise, and would you help us to extend those realities to the world around us? Father, we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.